You are listening to the Visualizing War and Peace podcast. In each episode, we look at how people have experienced, described, or imagined armed conflict and peace in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which representations of war and peace can have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Robert Rayner, and I'm a second-year philosophy student on the Visualizing War and Peace project at the University of St. Andrews. I've been taking part in the project during Martinmas semester of 2023, and in my research, I've explored neutralities and impartialities role in peacemaking and how people visualize everyday peace. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Debbie Flack. Debbie is a Quaker from Godalming in Surrey. She has recently come back from Palestine and Israel after spending three months as an EA, an ecumenical accompanier. EAs are human rights monitors who take part in a World Council of Churches program IAPI, the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Palestine and Israel. Today, I'll be asking Debbie about what being an EA is like, why it's important, and what role accompaniment can play in peacebuilding. Debbie, I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for joining me, and welcome to the Visualising War and Peace podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm pleased to come and talk to you today. I mentioned in the introduction that you were part of IAPI. Would you mind telling me a bit more about what being an ecumenical accompanier is like and what IAPI aims to do? Okay, the programme aims, as you've mentioned, to provide human right monitors to vulnerable communities. Primarily, this is in the West Bank of Palestine. The aim is that we accompany and visit people in these communities on a regular basis and help to provide protection against some of the worst violence that can be seen. The idea of protective presence is that when there's an international person present, sometimes the worst actions will not be taken by antagonists. Also, people who are vulnerable might feel strengthened to actually enforce their rights. We help to accompany local peace activists. And the programme also requires us to advocate for change as well, in particular, to advocate for an end to the occupation by giving at least 10 talks when we come back to members of the public. I was based in the South Hebron Hills, a rural area, although I stayed in a Palestinian city during the evenings. That's where we had a placement. But most of my time was spent walking with shepherds and shepherdesses in the hills. So on an average day, it would involve having breakfast with the team I lived with, which was a very international team, somebody from Finland, Germany, Sweden and Scotland. And there were five of us, which meant we could go out in two teams. So we'd probably have a look and decide which areas we'd go to. I'd spend most of my day from, say, 8.30 in the morning till three o'clock walking with a shepherd. The idea was to prevent violence and from them being unable to graze their sheep and goats because of the presence of settlers nearby. Settlers are Israelis who live in the community and their presence is deemed illegal by international law and they have 
taken to harassing the shepherds and preventing them from accessing their lands. And this has a real impact on the economic life of the shepherds. So our presence enabled them most of the time to still access their land. A lot of IAPI's work is monitoring this freedom of movement, house demolitions, access to education mm -hmm. and farmland. Where do these reports go? What do they aim to do? The reports will help to form the basis of reporting statistics used by such bodies as the UN present in the West Bank, and also to link with non-governmental organisations out in the field. So, for instance, if we witnessed a house demolition, the report we wrote would go not only to the UN, but might go to a charity such as Action Against Hunger, who would be able to go to the area and provide a tent and maybe food and help the family resettle in the short term. It's possible also that it went to, I think, the Norwegian Refugee Council, who might be able to provide some legal advice as well. So depending on the action, it went to various teams who we felt could help in the immediate short term. You seem to have quite a literal experience of walking with accompaniment shepherds and shepherdesses. How useful is it on a national scale of international people walking in a protective presence with locals? Actually, I think it is really useful, especially in light of what I see happening now in the West Bank. At the moment, the violence from the settlers has increased rapidly from I think before the 7th of October, there were around three attacks a day, and now there's six attacks a day, and more people have been displaced. I think when there is an international presence, the settlers are more careful. They don't want bad publicity. It's very easy to post things on social media, not that the Ecumenical Accompanies Programme does that, but... I think people are more wary of bad publicity. It does give strength to the local population. While I was there, if shepherds in a certain area knew that we were coming, they would walk further onto their land where without us, they would feel more threatened by the settlers and not venture out so far. So I think it definitely is a valuable tool and also, I think it's useful for a population that is suffering to feel that they're not forgotten, that they can have a voice. When I come back, um, you know, I think from the media, you might get the impression that everybody's got a gun, everybody is violent in the West Bank. And actually seeing shepherds with their sheep, seeing how they're trying to make a living gives a different view of life in the West Bank. So I think it's important, one, to go and witness it and to, to try and be a support to people who are suffering. Something that you see often in the media internationally about this conflict and others, religion is often framed as the root of these conflicts. So whether it's Sunni and Shia or even back to the Crusades, um, you have religion as an antagonist. But IAPI is a World Council of Churches programme, and that seems to flip it on its head. 
can religious people and religious bodies actually make a positive impact in peacemaking? Do they bring a unique perspective to the table? The World Council of Churches accepts people of all faiths on the programme and people of non-faith. So it's, it's not essential that you are religious, though I think having come back, I think having faith might help you have courage to go to a place where there is conflict and there's an element of danger. And having faith gives you hope, I think, sometimes, or it's a way of having hope. With regards to the framing of it being a religious conflict, I think it's a way in which the media simplifies what is actually going on. You know, what I see is land grab and the taking of economic resources. It's done through the proxy of it being a religious fight. And I know it's a big motivating factor for those who tend to have a, I guess I would say, a more fundamentalist view of their faith. But actually, it's about land. It's about controlling resources. As That was my view of what I saw. Did you feel that your own Quaker faith impacted your witness? Did you feel it? Because in, in Britain, the programme sends people from the Britain Yearly Meeting, which is the national Quaker body. What makes Quakers particularly interested in both Palestine and in wider peacekeeping efforts? I think maybe some of it is you're with a body that has an historic experience of being peacemakers or wanting to be peacemakers. And and maybe it attracts people who are interested in peace and who see it as an important part of their life, an important part of their witness. And I think being surrounded with people who have that viewpoint encourages you to become involved in different areas of the world where an ordinary person can maybe help make a difference. I was quite interested when you were talking about the media. What do you think that the media portrays most accurately about the conflict? And what do you think it misses the most? Which perspectives do you wish it shared more? Um, I think the media could do a better job of talking about the occupation. I'm very aware that the occupation on the main UK outlets is hardly mentioned. And I think the word peace is not mentioned. It's very easy to concentrate on the violence, but it doesn't show the non-violent resistance of the majority of Palestinians in the West Bank. I mean, when I was there, when there is a huge loss of life, the Palestinians will have a day of rage and people will not go to work, children will not go to school and everybody will stay indoors as a mark of protest and witness for an injustice. And that never really gets reported. So I think there's room for a conversation about having more context and talking about the occupation. And there is room for more conversations about peace. I do sometimes feel that there's greater identification with the Israeli side of the story, because I think very many images of life in Israel look more familiar to people in the UK than what is shown, for instance, in Gaza. But that is taken out of context of how Israel 
controls life and economic development in the West Bank and Gaza. So I would favour more information on the context and the occupation and more information on peace and what's needed for peace. That seems like it ties quite well into my next question, which is that IAPI describes itself as following principled impartiality. That's being neither pro-Israel or pro-Palestine. They don't take sides, but they're pro-human rights and international humanitarian law. What advantages do you think that this principled approach brings as opposed to maybe strict neutrality that doesn't engage politically at all, maybe like what's followed by the Red Cross? Part of me believes that all acts, I guess, are political, but I think it allows the programme to rise above the arguments as to whether it's a religious conflict or not by focusing, if you like, on hopefully those matters that everybody would agree on, that everybody should have the right to water, a means to earn a living, to enjoy ownership of property and not to be subject to continuous violence. So by concentrating, I think, on international human law and human rights, we can find a ground that people everywhere can agree on and the minimal that people need to live a peaceful life. Do you think that that approach is particularly important for long-term conflicts like the Palestine-Israel one? Yes, I think it's important for all conflicts because where there is inequality and injustice, then I'm not sure there can ever really be peace. And so I think it is always important that we concentrate on trying to keep that almost, I would say, a minimum standard of adhering to international law. It feels that everybody will be treated equally. Practically, how do you help yourself balance maintaining your principles with being able to listen to all sides? Do you think that maybe principles are what stops impartiality devolving into a political vacuum where you're implicitly siding with an oppressor in some situation? Yes, because it gives you a clear framework to go about your daily tasks and you have those in your mind and those are what you're reporting on each day. So although obviously you might see really dreadful things, you're going to, in a way, not dwell too much on the emotional distress, but you're focused on reporting, on being a voice, on trying to stop abuses happening. So I think that is really key to being able to do the role and to gain the respect of the general public for people who aren't informed. As part of my research, I thought about how the approach and insights of principled impartiality could possibly be applied to small scale non-national conflicts. For example, using principled impartiality in divorce courts, we see far greater success rates, happiness and far less animosity when 
arbitration happens as opposed to a full legal process. Do you think that the role of people who are principally impartial and the model of accompaniment can work in all of these cases of strife? Yes, I think so, because one, it gives a framework to hear both sides of the story, if you like, and apply a set of rules equally to both sides. And you have an objective of being fair and applying rules that are respected for both sides. So I think that sticking to principles is important. And I think on the global scale of things, now where we see countries sometimes abiding by international law, at other times moving away from them and there being no sanction against that, then there's a breakdown of trust amongst communities and in people. And then I sort of feel it gives space for those who are stronger to oppress those who are weaker. Yeah, so how important do you believe that local engagement is for this peace process? So you mentioned at the start that IAPI was invited by the heads of churches in Jerusalem to come and be witnesses and that you have to, as part of your advocacy, do 10 talks and other public engagement as part of your participation in the programme. Do you find it more fulfilling at home or abroad, this local engagement? I think for peace, it has to be present at a local level, almost at a personal level as well. There has to be something in each person that sees the benefit of having peace and sees its merits. And when it's in that individual person, then you can start to build it in a community. I think, and I know there are situations where things might be imposed from the top, but if that is not embedded down at an individual level and in the community, I'm not sure that peace will come because there will always be fear of the neighbour and fear of the other. So I think peace starts at an individual and at a grassroots level, there must be a desire by individuals. I think governments and the use of language can all help or distract from ideas of peace being seeded down at an individual level and a community level. But essentially, it has to be there at the grassroots level as well for peace, if you like, to really take a hold. Because I think peace is almost a continuous process. It's not static. Do you find that brings you to participate in peacemaking, building and keeping in broader contexts than just as an EA? So are you involved in any other peace movements? Um, I think since coming back, my primary focus has been ecumenical accompaniment programme and the advocacy. I have been involved in campaigns against the arms trade because I feel that prevents peace, really. I, I think weapons, although people say weapons are used defensively, I think it's very hard in the modern world to see that. So 
that is another strand of work that I've been involved in. And I've also been involved in prison work because I think the inequality there does not lead to peaceful societies and generates a sense of fear in local communities, which doesn't help community cohesion. And I think it's a strand of perhaps inequality, inner justice, not looking at symptoms and putting problems out of sight that also don't help society. So, But I actually have to say also within myself since coming back, it's made me reflect more deeply on what I understand peace to be. It's quite often easy to be angry about what you've seen, but actually to think, well, how do I convey the truth of the situation? How can I talk to somebody who doesn't have the same view as me? That is something that I've reflected on a lot more since coming back and the use of language and how I use my emotions. So I imagine that that inner peace is very important while you're in Hebron. How did you find that you were able to maintain that? Was there an active prayer life or meditation or did you just like to cuddle up with a book? How did you maintain your inner peace throughout being in a very stressful situation? Well, the programme does encourage you to think about this before you go out. So I always try and do a little bit of yoga, even if it's just 10 minutes, because that gets me in a different sort of headspace. I also try to do a little bit of spiritual reading each day. I actually find myself reading the Bible and normally I'm not a great one for reading the Bible, but having a little bit of spiritual reading also helped. I think also because I was out in the countryside, sometimes just looking at the sky or looking at a vista that's much bigger than yourself, again, helps you to find some sort of peace and perspective from what you're seeing. Yeah, so just a slight change of tack now. In the wake of October 7th and the flare-up of violence, Iapis had to withdraw from Palestine and Jerusalem. What will happen without their protective presence there? When you were talking about how settler attacks had already risen, would you say that that's partly a consequence of their absence? Yes, I think things have got much worse without the protective presence offered by ecumenical accompaniers. When I came back, one of the main stories I told was about a shepherdess in the South Hebron Hills. And since I've come back, their greenhouse, their home has been destroyed and that family has been displaced. And there have been more displacements within the communities that I visited. But yes, I think also during COVID, the ecumenical program left and the level of violence increased in the West Bank. So yes, I think having a presence there prevented some of the worst of the violence. If you were quite cynical, someone might say that eruptions of violence like this mean that the accompaniment approach isn't working. Is it that or is it that it's needed more than ever? Is it contributing to peace building or is it just trying to stop the situation from descending into an ever downward spiral of violence? I think it still does achieve the stopping of the worst of the violence. 
you know, we're only talking about 30 people being out there as part of the programme, so it's very small. And I think small steps still have to be taken, but obviously far more action is needed, not only by political leaders, but by everybody. The programme believes that everybody can take action. And I think, you know, quite often people will say to me, I don't believe it makes a difference. My MP hasn't written back. But I do know that MPs can be influenced by the sheer number of mail they receive on a particular topic. And if all the adults in the world did one thing, that's a huge voice. And sometimes it can be a small action. I think of, you know, the Arab Spring. It was a person be you know it was somebody who's selling tomatoes who was mistreated that helped to vocalize unrest in Tunisia so I think it's still important it's just that far more of it is needed. Very very interesting what do you think in the broader sense is then the biggest lesson that you've learned from being an EA? Oh that's <laughs> difficult I think that I I do believe we can all do something. I don't believe it's possible to look in some of the most troubled places of the world. We, We can create brave spaces. I think it's made me respect and very humble towards people who are suffering because despite the violence, I did not see in those communities where I was people ranting and raving every day they were still trying to act for a piece of love because they wanted their children and their families not to be consumed by the violence and the occupation that they saw around them so I think I witnessed the strength of humanity or the best of humanity that can you can see and I think in our normal daily life We don't stop and pause enough. And I think being out there has made me appreciate that and also understand the complexities involved in peace. That peace, we talk about peace, but actually getting to peace is really difficult and it takes a lot of work. I don't know if that answers your question. There are just so many things that I've learned. I think it's given me more courage, actually. I've done lots of things that I wouldn't have done. I've been to talk to a bishop. I've spoken to my MP. And I think maybe I wouldn't always have had that courage. But seeing ordinary people in the West Bank deal with an ongoing everyday occupation has given me a stronger, braver voice. Yeah, it's very inspiring. Do you find that since I imagine you're mostly relaying your observations, so you're talking about, oh, I saw this mistreatment or I saw this show of strength. Do you feel as if you're channeling that strength through you and that you've gained something? Yes, I've definitely gained from witnessing the strength of other people. Yes, and it's made me reflect inwardly on areas in my life which I would say are not peaceful. So I've gained more awareness, self-awareness and awareness of things in the world. And I think I might have believed before I went that, oh, 
maybe my MP doesn't really understand, maybe my MP doesn't see, but I realise that if I can see it and I'm just an ordinary person, that there is far more knowledge out there and more reasons to challenge what we see and the direction we move in. So as part of going out to Hebron, I imagine that you had lots of preconceived notions either side, even if you were still impartial. What was the most unexpected thing that you witnessed on either side of good or bad? I think actually one thing I didn't expect to come back with is a greater sympathy towards the Israeli perspective. I think maybe before I went, and, and I still am, but very much focused on the occupation and the violations of people's rights. And I saw the Israeli perspective through one prism as, as a group of people wanting a homeland. Having been there, I've come back to think, well, one, to understand better the fear that I think that exists a lot in Israeli society and a sense of insecurity. And I think I hadn't really understood that. Uh, but hearing voices from different sectors of Israeli society has given me that. But also I, I feel great sadness because I feel that maybe at the start of the Israeli state, there was this great hope of creating a lovely homeland, but that is so far removed from actually what has now been created. I mean, it was an incredible opportunity given at the expense of other people to create a homeland. And I cannot believe that this is the vision. This is what people really thought they would create a society that is quite fragmented, that constantly lives in fear and has not been able to find a way of overcoming that or have a broader perspective on how to live well. And, and so that's a nuance that I didn't have before and I wasn't really expecting that. And the other one, I think, is how it is possible to live under oppression, but still live with love in your heart and not be completely swallowed up by it. Yeah, fascinating. In my experience chatting to other EAs, that theme of the conflict hurting both sides. So that's why even though EAP only works in Palestine, because they've only yeah. been invited there, you have both Palestine and Israel in the name. I think that's a very powerful image. Iapi is sometimes accused of being one-sided. How much time did you spend in Israel? Did you find it was a very powerful experience or did you not gain much from it? Because you spend a lot of time deeply integrated with families in Hebron, but I, I don't know. I'd be fascinated to hear about what your time in Israel was like. I spent a week in Haifa with the programme and that was a bit of a more relaxing time. It was, it was there to be a break and also an opportunity to hear talks by different sectors of Israeli society. I mean, there's such a contrast. You don't go through checkpoints. Food is readily available. You can move. It, it's just such a different way of life. So there's a big 
contrast, a big sadness that the same is not enjoyed in the West Bank. I travelled by myself as well and visited Acre and travelled. I travelled by train from one end of the country to the other. And while I travelled, I counted just around the one carriage where I was and what I saw looking out of the window at stations. It was like, I don't know, a two hour journey. And I counted 60 soldiers on that journey carrying rifles. And to me, it was quite shocking that that was a normal occurrence for how militarised Israeli society is. I think because it's all about people, you can see that there is trauma both on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. Obviously, having greater economic wealth and freedom of movement brings a completely different perspective to how you're able to deal with the trauma. But the trauma on both sides is clearly visible, especially compared to the life I lead in in Surrey. You know, I don't see soldiers kitted up with machine guns and tear gas canisters. And to see that that has become a normal way of life and there not be any more greater imagination within Israel as to how to move beyond that is shocking and very sad. Yeah, it sounds like being international is really crucial for being a protective presence and having that external ability to spread out a message. But how did you balance that against wanting to be integrated and to truly see life on either side? Ecumenical accompaniers wear a very distinctive beige vest with the logo on the back. Did you feel yeah. like that singled you out and made people act differently? Or did you feel like you could push past that? I think it's hard to be fully integrated without being able to speak the language. You're always going to stand out. To my mind, there is something slightly wrong in the situation that your international passport gives you that benefit. It's not quite right. And in Hebron, there are community peace workers there who are local Palestinians who are also trying to provide some sort of protective presence. And they are obviously still there. And what they can do is much more restricted, but it should be equal for both those community peace teams and for the internationals that are there. So I think that we, in a way, experience the ordinary everyday life because we go to the same shops, we see violence while we're there and we're not in any way really sheltered. We get stopped by flying checkpoints, but we're not fully integrated because we know it's very unlikely that we're going to be shot because settlers or the soldiers don't want the hassle which would come with having to deal with somebody from an international community. One of my last few questions is, if you had the chance to do it again, would you? Actually, when I came back, I thought, I don't want to do it again. It is demanding, not the physical demands, but the emotional demands and how you cope with what you've seen. And I've got 
enough to do to tell people what's happened but since the 7th of October now I want to be out there now I think oh my goodness I wish they could send us back because I would go to those villages and stand with those Palestinians and maybe their homes wouldn't have been destroyed given the upsurge in violence I would go back (laughs) somebody suggested that maybe Quakers should go to one of the nuclear plants as well in Ukraine to be a protective presence there. And although it sounds crazy, I can see that it makes sense. So, yes, I would consider doing it now again. But don't tell my mother I said that. (laughs) (laughs) What would you tell someone who was wondering about applying to become an EA? What advice would you give them both? kind of spiritual and temporal? How could they survive and thrive? And why should you do it? I would say it is an amazing opportunity. The programme is very well structured and the training is very good. And if you pass the training, do not doubt that you will be able to do it and to come back, I would say, with extra depth and hopefully human understanding. I think you will form a very close bond with the people that you go out with and with the programme and with Palestinians. Hopefully you'll have a greater insight also to the Israeli perspective. I don't think you have anything to lose, only things to gain by actually doing the programme. I've come across this phrase that really there is no safe space. It's about creating brave spaces. And I think the programme and the steps taken by the World Council of Churches have created brave places in people's heads and hearts and in communities that they serve in the West Bank. So I would say do it. I think it's really important that you're grounded in the reason why you're doing it is a good reason and I think the interviews hopefully I think the UK training does look at that. You also need to have in your mind how will you keep your peace of mind together while you're out there. You need to have a plan whether it be you'll take some trashy novels with you, you're going to watch, tune into Netflix or you're going to do yoga you need to have something to keep your soul together, I think, while you were there. But actually, not to keep your soul together, but just to keep calm. Your soul will be kept together by the goodness that you see while you're out there, even though it's challenged by the violence. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Debbie, for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. If you would like to find out more about the Ecumenical Accompaniment Programme in Palestine and Israel, you can go to their website at eappi.org or the blog of EAPI UK and Ireland with more written and pictorial accounts like Debbie's by going to eyewitnessblogs.com. If you have any questions about the work of the Visualising Peace Project, please do get in touch. You can follow us on social media, just search for Visualising Peace, or contact us directly by emailing us at vizpeace at st-andrews.ac.uk. If you would like to support our project, 
please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. This show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you for listening.